So we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 1, starting at verse 8, down to the end of the chapter. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name, names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that a baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Well, good morning. It's great to be here on this exciting day. Um, you know, it's one of those days, isn't it? Like I, I woke up this morning to drive here. My car battery was flat. It's a great feeling early in the morning before the sun. It's like, oh, no, I've got to work that out. And, you know, it's a bit awkward having no water here at church, but be reassured, there's water outside there, there's bottles, but also you can still go to the toilet, right? So you don't have to hold it. If you do need to go, please go and use it. Um, but there's drinks out there, there's water, fresh water there for you to drink. There's plenty of hand sanitizer. Um, it's a wonderful day. So today, the kids have just gone out, so we will go a little bit longer than normal, but that's okay for us because it's an exciting day that God's been at work here. Um, and afterwards, there won't be any coffee and tea, but there will be drinks. So let's be encouraged by that. Now, let's, let's pray and ask God to help us as we come to a tricky passage. Heavenly Father, we want to give you thanks for this day. Thank you for the way you sustain us, the way that you've given us your word. You've made yourself known to us. And we pray now, Lord, that we'll just see a bigger glimpse of how you're at work. Help us to see you more clearly. And we want to pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you, you ever find yourself asking the question, where is God? Where is God in his people's suffering? You're one of his. And where is God when there are dark days? It, it's easy, I think, when we have sunny days. It's easy when there are good days. Easy when there are days that are going exactly according to how we want them to go. And we go, man, God is so good. God is so gracious. We are so thankful to God. It's, it's good days, isn't it? It's, it's easy to praise God and to have those feelings of goodness when you sit there in the doctor's dis, dis surgery, waiting for results, and the doctor leans over and he says, there is good news for you today. And you go, praise God. There's always a great time of excitement of going, your kids have got 
their report cards and you read them and they're like A model students and you go, I want to praise you God. You are good. It's, it's easy, isn't it, to, to be reminded that God is good when we're feeling well, when we're feeling good. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. Your career has been going well. You're getting good payments. You're paying the house off. You've got the, the perfect house, the perfect car. Everything's going your way. And what do we do? We say, God, you are good. And you feel good about it. But what about when it's dark? Where is he? You know, where our feelings are different, where they're not good, when they're fatigued, when we're angry, when we're annoyed. Where is God in that? We can feel, is he distant? You know, rather than the doctor leaning over and saying it's good news, the doctor leans over and says it's actually very terrible news. Or as your kids struggle at school and their marks are terrible and they need help and support and you think, man, how much darker can my life get as a mum or as a dad? And you think, where is God? You're feeling of being annoyed. Or maybe you just think, man, I wish I wasn't here today. I wish I was somewhere else. You know, it's good to say, you know, where is God? God's great when youth group when youth group is rocking. You know, the kids are coming along, they've got smiles on their faces, they appear to be learning. But what about those days when it's actually really tough and awkward and they're not learning? And you think, man, where's God? I'm not feeling it today. Where is God in that? And we come to a passage today of asking that question, where is God in his people's lives when there is darkness? Where is he? What's he doing? We come to a very dark passage And maybe you're here today for the first time and you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe mum and dad's forced you to come along or a friend said, hey, why don't you come and check this church out? And you think as that passage was read, you think, why is that even in the Bible? That's dark. That's horrible. This this is why I don't follow God. But I think one of the beautiful things that's here for a reason to show us how messed up and how dark and, and how real the world is when things go dark. I think we've all been there in that dark place where you feel like you're the psalmist who cries out, where are you, God? You feel like the psalmist of Psalm 88, where it says, darkness is my only friend. And so today I want to ask the question, where is God in his people's suffering? But before we do that, guess what we've got to do? We've got to go back to last week's sermon. Last week was our first, book, first sermon in the book of Exodus. And we saw some amazing things in the first seven verses. Now there's seven verses of just genealogy, they're just descendants, and we think, man, is that really that important? But what we saw was that through these names, we saw firstly that God is on mission. We saw that God was a God who's on mission and he has purpose to... He said in Genesis chapter 1, to multiply and fill the earth. We saw that God is on mission through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We saw that God is making himself known. And thirdly, we saw that because of Jesus, you and me, in Jesus, we've been brought into that mission. We've been brought into that plan of God's salvation. And up till now, in the book of Exodus, in the first seven verses, guess what life's doing? It's sunny days. Because the... The the Israelites have been living in Egypt and it's going pretty well for them. Joseph, it went well for him and his family. You know, we see that Joseph even started to look like the Egyptians. And in a way, I wonder if the the, the Israelites have started to take on Egyptian culture. They've started to fit in. They've started to enjoy their food and and life. And everything's going really, really well. These are the good days. And we read that in the first seven verses. But then, here's the conflict. Verse 8. Where is God in darkness? Well, it's God's working when it's dark. That's our first point of three. 
God's working when it is dark. See, verse 8, it flips. You know, we, we picture them, them, them prospering, everything's going real. They're multiplying, they're, you know, there's hundreds, there's thousands of them going. And, woo, woo, and, and we get to verse 8, and guess what? There's a new king on the throne. Up to now, it's, it's probably not the same, it's not probably the king straight after Joseph's king, it's probably a couple of kings down the track, obviously. And he's forgotten Joseph and a story of Joseph's. Have a look there at verse 8. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. There's a new king. There's a new regime. And this king is going to flex his muscles. He's going to flex his power. He's going to flex who he is. See, this king is the most powerful man in the known world at this time. And we're going to go from happy days to really, really dark and depressing days. And why do they become dark days? Because this powerful king, the most powerful man in the known world, decides and he's afraid. He's afraid of this race. He's afraid of the Israelites. Have a look, have a look there in verse 9. Behold, look, come. Sorry, look, he said to his people, the Israelites, they've become too far and numerous for us. Like they're, they're growing, they're multiplying. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous. Come, we must deal shrewdly. Let's deal wisely with these people. With them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they're going to join our enemies and they're going to fight against us and they're going to leave the country. This is a king who's actually afraid. He's got fear. See, the blessing of God for the Israelites to multiply is posing a threat to this king, even though he doesn't know the promise. That's threatening his power. And so probably behind the scenes here, this is probably not all, but it's probably you know, a cabinet meeting with a few of the major leaders of Egypt. The hopes of Egypt rested on this king. And the king pulls out the oldest trick in the book that a power-hungry man will use, or woman. He makes people afraid of this group of Israelites. He makes them afraid that these people will multiply too fast. He makes the people afraid of them in a way just so he can cover up his evil, his schemes. See, what's he afraid of? He's afraid that they're going to go up. That's going north. He's afraid that they're going to go up into Canaan. He's afraid that these people are growing so fast that they're going to go up. Now for us, last week, we saw that the book of Exodus is a sequel. It's like you can't watch the Hunger Games catching fire without watching the Hunger Games first. You can't read Prince Caspian without reading The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And so Exodus is the second book after Genesis. And so guess what? We need to know the book of Genesis. And here in Genesis chapter 15, in Genesis chapter 15, God speaks to Abraham. God's made a promise through Abraham that all nations will be blessed through him. In Genesis chapter 15, God takes Abraham out of the tent and guess what he says to Abraham? Hey, look up to the stars. Count them. I don't know about you, but I've looked up there and I can't count them. There's just too many. And God says to him, you'll have descendants more numerous than the stars. And Abraham's like, yeah, really? Like, look how old I am. And by the way, have you looked at my wife? Biologically, she can't have kids. And then God, while he's asleep, 
In Genesis chapter 15, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then Yahweh said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. What country is God talking about? He's talking about Egypt. And that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation. They serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. They will go up. You, however, will go to your ancestors in a place and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sins of the Amorites have not yet reached its full measure. Now, as we read, that's a bit blurry. But what God has just said to Abraham is after 400 years, you're going to go up. What's Pharaoh afraid of? That they'll go up. Pharaoh's petrified. But see, Pharaoh doesn't know he's actually treading on God's plans. And so what does he do? He oppresses the people. Have a look at, look, have a look at there at verse 11. He oppresses these people in a way that he's marking ownership over them. But we know that God owns them. See, he's wanting to say, no, 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 I own these people. Have a look at verse 11. So they put slave masters over them. See, he's worried. Because in the ancient world, you needed men to fight and you were known by your power by how many men you had to fight for you and he is afraid that the Israelites are going to have more men or have enough men to go away and come back and take over Egypt and so he puts the slave masters over them and he oppresses them with forced labor and they built Pythium and Ramsey as store cities for Pharaoh but the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and spread so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites they dread them and they worked them ruthlessly they made their lives bitter with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. He wants them to serve and to serve and to serve. We don't notice it here in the English, but in verse 13 and 14, the word to serve is over and over and over again used. He's saying, they're going to serve me. They're going to serve my purposes. Later on in the book of Exodus, as Moses speaks to Pharaoh and says, I, you're going to let these people go so they can go and worship Yahweh in the wilderness. The word there for that the NIV translates as worship, is to serve. See, Jesus says you can't have two masters. You can't serve two masters. But Pharaoh is saying, I'm Lord over these people. And I am going to work them to the grave. See, Pharaoh wants to work them so hard. So they go and make bricks. Now, making bricks isn't exactly the most sought-after career in that ancient world. It was what the slaves did, it was what the lowly did. So they go and make bricks. Now, making bricks is quite a dusty job. It's not exactly the best of jobs. At the moment, we're, um, we've got a house. We're going to move into a house this week, hopefully, and we're painting. And so we've got, to send, we've got to send all the wall. Someone went and put suede over the whole house. I don't know who does that, but obviously it was a trend at some stage. Maybe you have suede and that's okay. But we've gone through and I've gone sanding all the suede. Not, not all, my lovely wife's done some of it, but it's a dusty job. Now, can I tell you one thing, actually? Two years after COVID, I've never enjoyed wearing a face mask, but now when I sand, it's a joy to wear a face mask because I'm protecting myself. But when you make bricks, it's a dusty job. Kids were involved, mums, dads. It was a very difficult job. There was, there was walls around the brick pit because people could come and steal your bricks. People would get the clay and the water and they'd make 
clay bricks and they'd walk them out maybe on their head and they'd lay them outside to dry in the sun. And then as they dried, they'd have to come and take the bricks back to the kiln that was running really hot. Someone every minute of every day would have to keep that fire stoked with coal. It was a place that was filled with dust, clay, and as you worked, as the clay and the dust and the lime and all that stuff stuck to your skin, you sweat. And your skin would turn hard and crack. But this was oppression, oppression. And he wants to work them and work them and work them. This is oppression and slavery. Why? Because what happens when you're overworked? What happens when you're stressed? What happens when life is so busy that you feel oppressed or as life's going really hard? It's, what's, what's the chances of having lots of kids? It diminishes, doesn't it? When people are afflicted, tortured it's 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 his first plan he wants to crush their spirits but this spiral do you notice the spiral goes down this is sort of a bit of a cabinet meeting the first let's just try let's 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 enslave them first and then he gets even further south dark wise doesn't he because he's he, he grabs two midwives probably the head of the midwife clan and he says to them something horrific See what he is, see, by fearing the people that this race, this ethnicity will overtake us, he's fearing, getting the people to fear those people. Now, Hitler did exactly the same thing to cover up his wickedness and his evil. And he says to these midwives, you must kill the boys as they come out on the birthing stool. So the picture is that as an Israelite was giving birth, the midwife would come along and, okay, it's a girl, right? It's obvious, it's a girl, so she'd pass it on. But I think what he's saying is to the midwife is if it's a boy, you secretly kill him by the time you get the baby to the mum's breast. So it's a bit secretive. He's saying, can you just make sure it's a stillbirth? How low do you get? He wants to wipe it out so that he's not threatened. And he wants the boys killed. He wants the boys killed. And it doesn't work. Then we get, to, we get to verse 18, 19. And the king's like, what's happened? Why hasn't this happened? And the midwives answered Pharaoh. I think verse 19's got a bit of humour to it. It's, it's unsure. We actually don't know whether any boys were killed. I don't think so. Are they being dishonest? I don't know. They're just being vague. But, you know, have a, have a look at it. The, the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. Like, they're like, Pharaoh's come up to these midwives. Hey, what's going on? These boys are, there seems to be boys running around everywhere. Well, we're better stock. Now your women, you know, when we turn up, they're only five centimetres dilated and they just need to push more. But by the time we get to the birthing suite, well, the baby's already out. He's just, he's just, they're just what? It's just humorous. We're, we're just, these Israelite women, they're just better pushers. They're just better at having babies than you Egyptians. He doesn't like it, and so what you do, he even goes even further now. He makes it a national emergency where he tells all of Egypt, you've got to kill. Actually, he's saying, murder the boys. Murder them. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Why boys? I think I've already mentioned it. 
because men are fighting men and gives you power. But he wants to obliviate the boys. Now, isn't that dark? It's so dark that he's willing to kill baby boys. How do you sleep at night to just go, hey, just kill this race? Let's wipe them off the face of this earth. I said this point is God's working when it's dark. How, do we, how is God working in this passage? Did you notice something about what happened every time Pharaoh squeezed the chains tighter? Every time Pharaoh put more pressure, every time Pharaoh put them under oppression, right? The first time he squeezes them, what happens? They multiply. And so the tighter and the tighter and the tighter Pharaoh goes, in fact, he's actually releasing them more and more and they multiply. So the harder he goes, the harder he tries, with these chains of oppression, these chains of murder, the Israelites just multiply more and more and more because God is working in our dark days. He is not distant. See, Pharaoh is a great example of mankind in rebellion against the almighty God. See, God is working when it's dark. And when we get 20 years down the track, when we get 40 years down the track, or maybe we will never know until we are in eternity in heaven, in the new creations, we may never know until then when we can look back during those dark days and go, God, you were powerfully at work. Because see, God's not distant here. They may feel it. They may feel it, but God is not. So God, he's working when it's dark. And even if you look through the the last 2,000 years, when it's been dark, God has been at work in his church and growing the church. But not only do we see that God is working when it's dark, we're also going to see that God works through insignificant people. That's our second point. God is working through insignificant people. Where is God when his people are suffering? Where is God in their darkness? Well, he's working through insignificant people. We, we jump over this and we probably don't quite see it because we're a modern context. Look at verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth, the delivery stool, if you see that baby as a boy, kill them. Now we jump over that because in modern day literature, women are mentioned everywhere. In the newspapers, women's names are mentioned. But in the ancient world, it wasn't a place where you talked about women. In fact, sadly, women were subpar. Women were seen as tradable commodities. They were seen as sex objects. Women, they could trade for sex. They would trade it for money. They would trade it for produce. A dad might even, as his daughter wants to get married, he may say to that son-in-law who wants to marry the daughter-in-law, hey, I want that farm. I want something for this daughter. See, in this culture, women weren't highly revered. But how beautiful it is that as we go through the book of Exodus, we're going to see that God loves women. And he sees their place as wonderful and equal. But women weren't talked about and guess what happens here God names two women and guess who he doesn't name the king do you notice that the king of Egypt now archaeologists Christians most people would love to know this king's name so that we could place it in history but the inspiration by the Holy Spirit has left that out for a very good reason because it's not the point of who the king is the point is who the two women are 
and how they responded to the dark days. The king has no name. There's a shift in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, we see that the sons, they're the children of Israel. They have names. But by the time we get to verse 8 and going on, they're now Hebrews, even lower. And amidst this, no king with no name, this king with no name, and these reduced to just Hebrews, we have two women who are named. Two women who align themselves with God's purposes. So in the book of Exodus, the six women mentioned. Two women here who align themselves with the purposes of God. And Pharaoh was fighting against those purposes of God. And, and as we go through the pages of Scripture, we see that with Abraham and Sarah, they're not exactly the pick of the bunch. And God uses insignificant people. David is the runt of the litter. He's not the one that you would choose to be the king of Israel. And yet God uses and works through insignificant people. Two women whose names are recorded in God's word. The most powerful man in that century in the known world has not even been mentioned. And yet two women are recorded for us three, four thousand years later for us to read. In God's big story. Why? Here it is because they feared God and not man. They feared God and not man. That's point three. So the irony here is Pharaoh was making all the people fear Israel. But the midwives, they feared God. The women feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And they were two women who served God humbly through their suffering. See, they're they're two women who feared God, not man. And because their names are recorded here, it means that God saw them. God sees you in your darkness. God sees you in your dark days. God sees those who fear God and not man. In all the darkness, in all the mess around us, it can feel like God is distant and far away. It feels like our emotions and our feelings are so inward that we think, how are we going to move on from this? But my friends, God sees you as you fear God and not man. As you're the only one who sits there and the morning tea table at, at, at work around 20 other people God sees you as someone who fears God, not man, when the rest of the world around you is living in darkness. God sees you. As you sit there at lunch, as a teenager, around the school bench, as people bring out porn, as kids talk about sex and a new sexual revolution and the way sex is meant to be, God will see you in that moment as you fear him and not humanity's version of what sex is about. God sees you as you sit here today and you go, man, if only I could have Mr. Right or be married to Mrs. Right. If only I could stop being single. No, no, no. God sees you where you're at. God sees. He sees those who fear him. But just because you fear God, it does not mean that darkness will be taken away. See, for Israel, the people of God, there were sunny days and there were 
dark days. There is this lie, there is this mis- thing, these misinformation that's going around, that's sweeping Africa, that's sweeping America, and it's even sweeping Australia, that says once you follow Jesus, life is, you're going to be rich, you're going to be wealthy, and life should go your, your way, and you should be healed. And if it's not happening, you haven't feared God enough. But the people of God, Israel tells us it's something different, isn't it? Because they had good days. And man, did they have really, really dark days. But God was working through those dark days and he's working through insignificant people. But why does God allow this? It's a question, isn't it? Like, why the kids? Like, if you're here today, you might not be a Christian and you're thinking, man, why doesn't God step in there and completely overturn that? Why? You might be asking that question today, and, and honestly, we don't get a clear answer. But here's what it is here's the reality. Here's what I know that as I trace from the beginning of Genesis to the book of Revelation, as I track the promises of God in the midst of a messy and dark world, what do I see? I see God always at work bringing about his purposes and plans, even though I feel like I'm living in darkness. And why can we know that God is good and gracious? Because we get to the cross of Jesus Christ. We get to a dark moment. We get to the moment where this seed of Eve who would crush the serpent, we get to this point in history where we can look to the cross in those dark moments, in those dark days where we're thinking, God, why? We look to the cross of Jesus Christ and we see that God is good and that he is gracious and he is working all things out for his plans and his purposes and he is a gracious God who has rescued us. We look to the cross. God is good. God is gracious. See, God works through insignificant people. See, these two midwives were two women who feared God and not man. They are totally insignificant in the picture of this world. And yet God's written them in the book of all names. He's written those two women there. Maybe today you're feeling insignificant. How could God work through me? What's my place? What's my place in this dark moment? Or what's my place in this sunny moment? God works through insignificant people in in powerful ways that shape eternity. See, these two insignificant women have eternal significance for you and me here today. It'd be about 100 years ago. Might be a bit less, might be a little bit more. This man by the name of A.G. Knox, he went to this little village outside the parks, I came, up, I came from parks, called Bogangate. Now, if you don't know where Bogangate is, it's okay, don't Google it now. Go home and Google Bogangate. It's this little village out west, it's where the Bogan River starts, and it's called Bogangate. Now, you can work out what that village looks like and what it's like, but it's, it's Bogangate. Go and Google it. But nearly 100 years ago, a bit more, a bit less, a man by the name of A.G. Knox, a man who feared God, not man, a man who was insignificant in the scheme of this world, who's a man who's probably never going to get his name up on the board, he'd probably never get a building named after him. But he's a man who went to a very dark place and he preached the good news of Jesus in Bogengate in the 1920s, 1930s. And people 
turn to Christ. People, through his preaching, through this insignificant man, were saved. And the impact of that is phenomenal. No one will know, he might not even know, but not tens, not twenties, I think thousands of people, he's multiplied, the kingdom has grown through one man going to Bogan Gate. I stand here today because that man went to Bogan Gate. A man insignificant in this world who has eternal significance where I can come here every Sunday and I get to tell you about Jesus. And that's affected my family. And there's actually another family in this church that's been affected by that man. Multiplying. Insignificant with eternal significance for you and me here today because we're rescued by Jesus. And these two women have eternal significance. What was Pharaoh trying to do? Eliminate the seed of Eve. He was trying to knock out all the firstborn boys. And what did God say in the garden when we rebelled? He said to Eve, through your, through your seed, there's going to come a seed and there's going to become a snake crusher. Now that snake crusher is Jesus. But here, Pharaoh was trying to wipe that out. And yet these two women who just feared God, not man, look at the eternal significance they have. RJ, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, joyous day to have you here and be inducting you here as associate pastor. It'd be great to be reminded to fear God and not man. It will be tough. There's times when as we minister, there'll be times where we will want to fear man and not God. You know, you may never, you know, you may never play basketball for, for America. You may never you know, get your name on a building. You may never have five investment properties on the beach. But God sees you. He sees what you're doing. And the ramifications and the eternal significance that that will have as you minister wherever, whenever and however God uses you. But it's also a reminder, and I think it's a reminder for all of us, and it's a reminder for Pastor RJ, and it's a reminder for me, that in ministry as pastors there are sunny days. Great days filled with joy, but I can tell you there is also very dark days as well. And so be reminded that there is going to be sunny days, there's going to be dark days, but in the midst of that, may we be men who fear God and not man. May we be people who are active and serve God. I think it's Caleb in the, in the Old Testament. Caleb's there, he's old, he's ancient. And the people of God, as they stand on the edge of the promised land, they're going to, they want to enter the promised land. But they're too scared. And this like, 80-year-old bloke says, you know what? He's probably had three hip replacements and knee surgeries. And he's, he's a man who feared God, not man. He said, I'll just go, let's go. Insignificant. Two insignificant women who went on about business as normal. May we be people who fear God and not man. To fear God is to be in awe of him, to worship him, to, to understand his holiness. May we be people who fear God and not man in the midst of dark days. Because 
context here of 21st century Australia has shifted. See, for many hundreds of years, yes, it's people have not liked Christians. But for the last century, last year, guess what? Last century, Christians were the good people. People looked to the Christians. People saw them as the morally upright and gone, oh, we want to sort of aspire to be like them. But as we go into the 21st century, guess what's happened? It's taken a shift. We are the bad guys now. We are seen as the, the terrible people. The ones who stand against you know, what God speaks about sexuality. We're seen as the ones who hate. We're seen differently. We are in, you know, there's times where we're going to have sunny days and there's going to be times where we have dark days. So may we be a church that knows that God is working in dark days. That God is working through insignificant people and that we're going to be people who fear God and not man. Because there's always dark days. There was a power struggle here in Exodus. There's a big power struggle between Pharaoh and God. He doesn't know that, but there's a power struggle for wanting control. There's a superpower in the world in that day. But then when Jesus came into this world, as he was born in the backwoods in Bethlehem, in an insignificant village with insignificant people, a mum and dad who really weren't the cream of the crop, this superpower of the day called Herod, what did he do? He said, let's kill all the firstborn child from that village. There was a battle. And, and, and Jesus went down to Egypt. And, they, and Jesus went up to Egypt and he walked into Jerusalem to save us from our sins. And that at the cross we were redeemed, forgiven, restored. See, we can be... He's had victory over sin and death. Friends, we can become people who are all doom and gloom. We can all bury our heads in the sand... And look at the world around us and go, oh, woe is me. My friends, we don't have to do that. Because the most powerful scheming, the most thought out schemes, the most, th- most meetings behind closed doors that will want to try and stifle the growth of the church, nothing can stifle and crush Christ's church. Nothing's going to get in the road of it. Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my bride, against my church. Nothing can happen, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how bad it gets. God, through Christ, through Christ's church, it's going to grow. See, no matter how much fear is spread, nothing is going to stop Christ's church. See, what happened? The harder Pharaoh pushed the more it flourished. We have a a hero, the Lord Jesus Christ, who who was powerful and enthroned on his throne. See, Pharaoh wanted to be the hero. He wanted to be the hero of the story, but we have a different hero. We have the hero, Jesus. This week, I was watching a Netflix, no, it was actually on Disney. I was watching a documentary, but a slash movie called Torn. And this movie traces the steps of a man called Alec Lowe and his son Max is the director. Alec Lowe in the 90s was the most famous and probably the best mountaineer climber in the world. He was renowned, he was famous and his son uh, Max in this video he says, he says my dad at the age of 10, I think it was 9, 10, he says my dad was my hero. I looked up to my dad 
As a hero, I was in awe of him. I feared him. And he thought to himself, nothing can happen to this man. And he has this moment of going, my dad is this hero who won't let anything happen to me or to himself. And then one day his dad was climbing away from home up on a mountain. An avalanche came flying down the hill and he was frozen and killed in that avalanche. And so 17 years later, his son Max and his mum and his brothers, they get a message that they think they've found the body that's been exposed on the mountain. And so Max and his brothers and his mum and his new dad, they climb up the mountain. And you see this picture of them bringing a body down in a black plastic bag. And they bring the body down and, and in a way, because it's in the ice, it hasn't fully deteriorated. It's a bit like it's a bit mummified. You could still make the body out, but it, wasn't, like, it was still there. And this was Max's hero. And his whole world was let down when his dad died. And he said this, you'd never think you were going to have to confront the body of your hero in that state. So he's confronting his hero, the one he was in awe and worshipping. He confronted him in that state. The idea of this glorified figure of a man is now gone. And this king who has no name, who tried to kill boys after boys after boys, has no name. He was buried. He was mummified. He was not a victorious king. This king is dead, but our king is victoriously alive. May we not be in awe and wonder of man, but may we be in awe and wonder of our king who laid his life down for us and has had the victory. And God says, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, Jesus is enthroned on his throne, and no matter how dark it gets, all things in this world are coming under Jesus' feet. Where is God? God is at work in our dark days. God is working through insignificant people like you and me. May we be a church that loves to fear God, not man. Let's pray. Father, we recognise that in life there are days where the sun is shining, the beach is good, life is going well. And Father, we recognise that we can so often see you at work in that. But Father, sometimes we forget in the dark days you're still at work. And so Father, thank you for this reminder this morning that you are above all, that you are working in this mess, you're working out your plans and your purposes today. Father, may we be a people who, even though we're insignificant, will see the, the, the way that you're using us to make and grow disciples of Jesus. And so, Father, we ask for your help today. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. He's our hero. And so, Father, may we turn our eyes to him now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.